Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from- And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Before we get in, jump into our program today, I want to urge you all to call with a for your support for the station at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Uh, we have this brief summer keep cool wart fundraiser going on. And, well, show your support, not just for the station and this program, but for everything we do at WORT as an alternative, as a, as a standalone voice on radio and now across the web. Again, 608-256-2001, extension 1. With me in the studio is longtime WRT supporter, WRT partisan, uh, Bert Zipperer. Hi, Alan. Bert, just a brief word of why you support what we're doing. You know, it's about being informed, about about knowing uh, things that you won't find elsewhere. And also, Alan, you've been doing this about 20 years. Yeah, and that's probably over a thousand shows. And I know how much work Alan puts into this, so I'm I'm here to support Alan and WRT, and I hope you are too. Well, thank you much, Bert. Uh, you know, we go back almost beyond that twenty years. Yes, and, we do. Uh, so you've been keeping count, and I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I did the uh, math. It'll be on the midterm. Okay. But anyway, uh, you know, I want to jump right in uh, with uh, our guest today. Joining us is <clears throat> for this special Summer Pledge Drive edition of Public Affair is John Melrod. He's the author of Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War. Melrod's work might best be described as a political memoir of a lifetime of activism, but it's much more. It's a book with a mission by a U.S.-made radical, while the heart of it recounts his 13-year 1970s-80s project to organize and advance working-class militancy on the factory floor of American Motors Corporation in Milwaukee and Kenosha and elsewhere. It's also a story of a, it's a reflection, really, of one from a generation radicalized by the social, political, and cultural upheavals and movements of the so-called 1960s and what came after. The book carries important lessons for the present, especially for those engaged and or still engaged in the good fight today. John Melrod, welcome to WORT. Well, thank you, Alan. And it feels like a homecoming because I spent some of my best years right there at the university during the uh, late 60s. Well, we'll certainly get to that. Um, But the question is, the first question is, so where do we start? Perhaps we should begin by talking about why you embarked on writing the book. What led you to write it? What was your intent or hope? Well, what really motivated me to write the book was I was diagnosed in 2004 with terminal pancreatic cancer and only given six months to a year to live. And my two young sons, seven and 10 years old, really were beside themselves because the surgeon in his prognosis linked the pancreatic cancer to my work with toxic industrial chemicals when I went into industry in Milwaukee. And they just kept asking questions. Dad, why did you go to college and university in Madison and then go to work in a factory? And I figured if they were ever going to be able to understand it, if I did depart within the next couple of months, I better get as much of it as I could written down for them. So that was really the starting point. But it's evolved a lot because there have been such a positive reaction from young people who are again taking up this mission to change the world, to build unions, that it's become an inspiration to both them and me. So I think that it 
started some one place, but then grew much larger. Uh, you're listening to John Melrod. We're talking today about fighting times, organizing on the front lines of the class war. Remember to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, to show your support for this program, for all the public affairs and public coverage, news coverage, and music arts entertainment at WORT 89.9 FM. John Milrod, let's talk about your radicalization process, your particular leftward trajectory. After all, none of those who moved to the far left uh, during that period of mass protest, rebellion, and politics, social and cultural upheaval were born revolutionaries, right? Describe your evolution, your process of becoming. I first began to become politically active in high school, and that was during the heart of the, the Vietnam War and also the civil rights movement. And in 1967, when I was a high school student, we went to shut the induction center in Manchester, New Hampshire to black to block draftees from being inducted and sent to Vietnam. And at the same time, I was they had just killed three civil rights workers, uh, Schwerner, Cheney and Goodwin in 64, who were organizing black uh, black people in the South to vote. And it was the Klan that murdered them. And I realized they were just a few years older than me. And, and those two, two, the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, really what started me on the path to thinking politically. So by the time I was ready to graduate high school, I looked around for the most political college campus I could find so I could carry on my political activity, and that was Madison. So I applied to come to school in Madison, and that's where a lot of this story really starts. That leads nicely into my next question regarding just, just what you're touching on there. After growing up in what you describe in the book as apartheid-like Washington, D.C., and in a stint at an alternative boarding school in Putney, Vermont, you entered the UW as an 18-year-old freshman in 1968. Talk about Madison's activist climate at the time, the impact it had upon you. Uh, after all, Madison had already become a center of opposition, as you mentioned, to the U.S. aggression in Vietnam and much, much more. Yeah. When I first got to Madison, this was obviously before the days of computers, you, have to, you used to have to line up in long lines to register for your classes. And when I got to the very end and they gave me my schedule, they had assigned me to an ROTC class for seven weeks, reserve officer training. And I was, you know, I'm against the Vietnam War. Why am I being, you know, enrolled into an ROTC training class? And I went to my first SDS meeting, Students for a Democratic Society, which was very strong in Madison and one of the reasons I chose to go there. It was a student organization at that time of about 100,000 young people on campuses all over the country. And the first SDS meeting, I raised that I had was being assigned an ROTC class. And they said, well, why don't you go in and disrupt it? You're against the war. We're against the war. And so my first week in classes, I stood up in the ROTC class and I said to the second lieutenant that was teaching it, you know, I'm here to say I'm against the war. The war is, you know, atrocity being committed by the United States military. And ROTC is what props up that war. And about 30 of us walked out and left the class and started picketing. And within the next couple of weeks, there was a, a vote by students that ROTC shouldn't be mandatory for freshmen a vote by the Wisconsin Student Association. And we actually won that first struggle against the war. ROTC was discontinued as a mandatory program for freshmen. Again, you're listening to John Milrod, former Madison activist who went on to decades 
of activism on the factory floor in Milwaukee and Kenosha uh, and is still in the good fight. If you're in the good fight, if you, if you understand or appreciate what we're talking about here today, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Uh, uh, Annie, one of our phone answers, keeps walking in with, with, with forms of people already pledging, which I'm always glad to see, but we need your support. Uh, again, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Uh, and show, uh, you know, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk for W-O-R-T. Your, John Milrod, your political development continued to evolve during those Madison years. What was key? Take a moment, perhaps, to talk about your experience in the summer of 1969 with the Wisconsin affiliate of the United Farm Water, excuse me, United Farm Workers, the Obreros Unidos. I found that very yeah. interesting in the book. You know, most of the students were really focused exclusively <clears throat> on the Vietnam War. But I also had an interest in labor. And I saw a poster on one of the ubiquitous telephone poles in Madison that have staples on them going back a hundred years. And it announced, it announced a talk by Jesus Salas, who was head of the uh, Obreros Unidos, United Workers. And I went to that and it was right during the five-year strike or boycott of grapes in Delano, California, where Filipino and Mexican-American farm workers were struggling to build a union. And at that particular class that Jesus was going to teach at the School for Workers, I walked in and there were all these guys with their blue nylon jackets, United Steelworkers of America, big bellies, crew cuts. And I said, oh my God, I must have ended up in the wrong meeting. Um, but interestingly enough, after Jesus spoke and explained the conditions <clears throat> under which farm workers were working, no bathrooms, you know, pesticides in the air with no protection. The steel workers put up their hand and said, <clears throat> I make a motion. Let's show Brother Salas how the steel workers conduct a boycott. And the next Friday, we went out to the Kroger's in Madison. I believe it was out on the east side. I don't know if it's still there. We picketed it first and then the steel workers, 50 of them marched into the Kroger's and they all filled up shopping carts overflowing with groceries, with ice cream on the bottom. They got to the checkout stand, they parked their carts, they walked out and they sung Solidarity Forever. And there was one, there was one lyric in that that stuck with me that really became a guiding light for my politics after that. And that line was, we shall bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. And I said to myself, that's pretty radical stuff. And I can get, I want to be part of that. And that's what got me going in the direction of looking at labor as something that I considered to be such an important component of changing society in the United States. You're going to take a brief moment, but I want to bring Bert Zipper, our friend, friend, longtime friend of mine and friend of the station uh, to, well, what do you have there, Bert? You have, you have a stack of paper building up here. What is this? Well, I'm going to do the traditional bell ring and a big thank you uh, to Harry Richardson. Harry, thank you for your generous contribution. You came in first, as always, and, and we appreciate that. Um, and you say that you appreciate Ellen's hard work. So do I. That's a good observation, Harry. Work? <laughs> Just winging it here, huh, Ellen? Um Keith and Karen Weiss, oh my gosh, a great generous pledge, and you're taking home the silicone pint glass, the WRT pint glass, so hoist one for, for me and for Ellen, and a big toast to WRT and to social justice everywhere. Annie Habel comes through with another generous gift. She's not only answering phones, but she's giving money, and she's giving me another pledge right here. Um, oh my gosh, Dave Polkankowski. Um, 
Madison, in the Hall of Fame for Madison, he does not want a thank you gift, and that's a very, very generous gift. And Evan, Evan, you are increasing your monthly monthly uh, evergreen, and you're getting a T-shirt. So uh, thank you, Evan, and thank you who are calling right now because you're all important, and we all appreciate Alan, and bring, bring on the money. John Melrod, I want, to, I, want, I want you to talk a little bit about that late 60s perspective at the time, your political alignment, if you will, and where it led. By You know, you go in, you make this decision in 1972 to move to Milwaukee uh, uh, and to use a term from the period to industrialize, that is go to work in a factory with the intent of organizing among the industrial working class Talk about that, your, your, that perspective at the time. Yeah, there was when SDS unfortunately splintered, like is so endemic to the left in the United States, there was a certain faction that came out of that uh, revolutionary youth movement too. And there were two fundamental principles that those of us in Madison who joined that movement adhered to. One of which was that upon graduating, we would go into the military to organize against the Vietnam War, or we would go to working class cities and neighborhoods and go to work in industry. Because we had come to the conclusion that if we were going to create systemic change in this country, if we were gonna really be able to wage war with capitalism, and kill capitalism before it kills us, that we had to go to the working class and into the unions to organize people. We had to expand past the campuses. Just one quickly, before I went to, to Milwaukee to work in industry, there was the invasion of Cambodia. And there was a huge coalition in Madison protesting the war. I was part of the labor committee. So already in Madison, at that time, we were organizing in front of six, 17 factories or workplaces, hospitals, rallying workers against the war. And at Oscar Mayer, I don't know if it's still there, they, the stewards had proposed a anti-war rally. So I could already see that there was ferment in the working class that was growing out of dissatisfaction with the war and with the way the government was operating. So along with about probably 20 other Madison students, I moved to Milwaukee in that period. And in those days, you could walk into Milwaukee, walk into any employment office in any factory and get a job. And uh, at first I went to a small factory that made paint trays for, for Sears and Roebuck. The only reason I bring that up is because I was making a transition from student to working every day. And my straw boss said to me, Juan, get into that vata, that vat, and clean it out. And I looked over and there was a barrel with a skull and crossbones on it that said trichloroethylene. And that's what the vat was, was filling with trichloroethylene to burn the grease off of paint trays that had been stamped out by the punch press. That trichloroethylene the surgeons directly linked my pancreatic cancer too. But I only stayed there to get my, so to speak, my feet wet in, you know, making a transition. You know, it was funny. I remember thinking to myself when he said, you got to clean the vat. And I was thinking, geez, I just was in Madison where you can take an incomplete. But I don't think that's the way you can do when you're working in a factory. So, but I looked for a job where I would be in a more strategic location which at that time was the American Motors factory in Milwaukee. Probably most of your youngers are, I mean, most of your listeners are too young to remember it, but we used to make the javelins and the matadors and eventually the pacers and whatever. And I started working on the auto assembly line in, in May of 1972. So, so there you are, John, John Milrod, uh, working at American Motors in Milwaukee. Basically a white middle-class kid, fresh from Wisconsin's radical hotbed, uh, come to organize the proletariat. 
What did you learn right out during the, your early time on the AMC shop floor? How did you make inroads and gain allies? The first thing I learned was that working on assembly line was hard as hell. I mean, putting in the same six bolts in taillights every minute was incredibly tedious and incredibly physically taxing. So my first impression was, wow, I can really understand why there's a need for unions and why there's a need to take on the companies because these conditions are pretty rough. And I had gone in with the intention of becoming a radical, but one of the first things I learned is you don't go in to organize by standing out as a radical, standing at the plant gates, calling for people to, to vote for socialism or fight for socialism. You've got to get very involved in the day-to-day issues that affect people around you on the assembly line. And, you know, you've got to be normal. People have asked me often, how did you make the transition from student to worker? And I said, there is no big deal. You You just act normal. You don't act like you've gone in there to be some sort of intellectual organizer. And within the first couple of months, the company came around and notified us that we'd have to work on a Saturday. And I found a contract, which were few and far between, that when I went through it said that overtime was voluntary. So I went to the Xerox and copy machine and copied that page of the contract and started handing it out to the other young guys, a lot of whom were Vietnam vets of color who were angry, who felt they had been treated like second-class citizens fighting in, in Vietnam in a war they didn't believe in, and other young people. And we decided we weren't going to work Saturday. And when they came around to tell us to notify us with the steward on Thursday that work was required on Saturday, we all refused. And it spread like a grape, uh, grape line up and down the assembly line. We don't have to work. And everybody refused. The company had to cancel the Saturday overtime, which meant they hired more workers, which is one of the fundamental principles of unionism, is if there's people out there on the street, let's get them to work before we work overtime. And it also was the first big challenge to the company. Talk, Talk about the divisions among workers on the shop floor, the dividing lines of race and gender, and how racial justice and gender equality were key to your organizing. You say when you turn you turn a nice phrase how breaking down the two pillars of white supremacy and male chauvinism were linked to the broader project of building workers' power on the shop floor. Well, I think that was in many ways very much key to the ideology and the work that we were doing at American Motors, and. As time went on, we, we had a newsletter, the rank and file caucus that we put together of dissident and young and dissatisfied workers. And we used to put it out monthly. And in every issue of that, we would identify certain foremen that engaged in egregious behavior, be it racist, be it sexist. And we'd call them out by name. And we developed a column called Scab of the Month scab in Jack London's terms, being a strike breaker, a lowly life strike breaker. And people would write in what they thought about these particular foremen. For instance, there was a foreman named Stevie Freeman. And to this day, I find it remarkable that his behavior was condoned by the corporation. At one point, he went up to a black worker and he actually threw a 35 pound air gun at him and called him a lazy MF N word. And then he went over to two black women and said, put his fingers in the shape of a pistol and said, bang, bang, two dead blackbirds and went up to one of them and said, you know, I'd like you better if you weren't so flat chested. So we really declared war on Steve Freeman. I mean, he was both a racist and he was both a sexist and we, the caucus printed up stickers that had a character of Steve Freeman looking like a pumpkin, which he did. 
And everywhere people put those stickers on the back of his shirt, in on their work machines, on you know the bathroom doors. And then seven stewards filed, followed him around like puppy dogs following their mother all day long. And if he picked up so much as a screw, he'd be written up for doing union work. And the worker who wrote him up would be paid an hour's pay. So we made his life in the factory relatively intolerable, including work stoppages, when workers didn't go back to work to protest the way he was treating the workforce. As a consequence, the Fair Employment Practices Committee of the union came in and they investigated it and he was discharged. The first time that a foreman had been discharged for that type of behavior toward the workforce. And that really built the momentum and the support for the caucus, the Fighting Times caucus that we had. There were a group of us that were all activists that used to meet regularly or meet in the bars after work and discuss what we wanted to do, what we wanted to write about, how to get organized. You're listening to John Milrod. We're talking about his memoir, Fighting Times, organizing on the front lines of the class war. There are various lines of that of that seemingly eternal conflict that goes on. Uh, and in a sense, we're part of a, part of what we do here at Wart uh, is to inform you, our listeners, the broader public about these issues. Uh, give some not only uh, news, uh, but analysis help to deepen our understandings of, well, what's going down. Uh, there's, you know, there's strike activity right now as we speak in Madison, Wisconsin. There's strike activity in Milwaukee as we speak uh, at va- in various sectors, uh, all connected to that longer history that John Melrod is talking about. Give us a call. Uh, or excuse me, yes, call the station at 608-256-2001, extension 1. With me, as mentioned earlier, uh, here in the studio is longtime supporter Bert Zipper. Well, and I want to say thank you to uh, numerous people who are calling in and, and pledging. Uh, Mark Eisen, thank you for that pledge. You say you love jazz programming and public affair. And... And then the Grindy Group. The Grindy Group. <laughs> uh, Mary Ann, a very, very generous uh, pledge. Thank you. You love a public affair, choral music in the, in the morning, and much more. And Alan. Kate from Washington, the state of Washington, um, says she likes this a public affair times three. So those are her top three programs, Alan, Alan, Alan. <laughs> Well, I have, you know, these are partisan listeners, uh, uh, <laughs> listeners. These are uh, family members. So, uh, but thank you, Kate, all the way from, from Washington State and Mary Ann, all the way from the, the near west of, of Madison, the west side. Thank you both. 256-608-256-2001, extension one. Let's return to this discussion with John Melrod. John, what you described, there's a broader related question to what you've been describing, this, this struggle. Uh, that is, what did you come to see as the relation between the day-to-day nuts and bolts issues on the factory floor, such as what you just described, and that strategic goal of building class struggle unionism, workers' rights and economic issues wedded to political struggles? That was also very key to what we wanted to be able to accomplish. And I'll give you one example that you referred to strikes in in Milwaukee and Madison. And right now there is a struggle going on at the Masterlock plant in Milwaukee, where they just announced they wanted to close the factory and get rid of 320 workers, almost all African-American. And just yesterday, there was a protest out in front of the plant demanding that the plant stay open. And at American Motors, back in 1980, American Motors had been purchased by Renault, the French national auto company. And we decided that it was really key to 
get develop an understanding among the workers at American Motors that we didn't just face one employer who was there to exploit us, but it was fundamentally a class of employers, worldwide international capitalism that all workers faced. So when Renault purchased such a large portion of American Motors, we really started talking to people about how we're part of an international working class. And our first newsletter had a picture, a cartoon of an octopus, and it had a car and one tentacle from Spain, another tentacle from France, another tentacle from American Motors, and the octopus had a beret on for it being a French. And in 1980, Renault announced that they were going to move work from the plant in Kenosha to their plant in Canada. And we would be losing a thousand jobs in Kenosha. And most of the time people in this country, not so much so in Europe, but in this country, when the employer says we're gonna lay off or shut down, people take it as a given that that's what the employer has the right to do. But in 1980, we decided we were gonna fight that loss of jobs. And we started a petition along with the union leadership 6,000 people signed it, demanding that those jobs stay. We then had a rally of thousands of us out on the street during a lunch break, you know, save our jobs. From there, we called a meeting, the union called, where we voted to strike if they move those jobs. And in the end, we beat them. They didn't move the jobs, and they had to tell a 1,000 people that they had brought in to be hired in Canada that they wouldn't be coming to work. So it's important for the working class to understand we can stop things like the master lock closing if we get united and we act together. And that's what happened at this rally yesterday. There were workers that were there from when in 1980, when I was still there, and we had had mass picket lines of unions from all over the city because of a strike that was going on. So we wanted people to understand that they're part of this international class movement. So when a chief steward got fired at a Renault plant in Belgium, a thousand workers or more signed a petition in Kenosha demanding he be rehired. So that began to develop this feeling that we're facing common problems wherever we are in the world, as long as the capitalist class runs things, they're going to seek to extract the greatest return on profits they can, which is basically what's going on at Masterlock. It's a successful company. It makes money. But if they move the jobs to Canada, they can make even more money by squeezing even more out of the workers. John Milrod, uh, we kind of got ahead of our story because there's so much to it uh, in, in the 70s. Over a period of time, you became so successful in your organizing that you were physically picked up, carried out and dumped out of the factory and dumped on the sidewalk. You were thrown out of the plant. How did that come about and what was the result? The result is, is very important, I think, obviously. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very important for a number of reasons. The, the first was that the company had announced they were gonna uh, at, speed up the assembly line. And if anybody who's worked in a factory the word speed up is anathema because what it means is you're going to have more work to do. So each of us had to do three more cars per hour than we had previously been working on. So by this time, we had formed a caucus, a grouping of us that would meet regularly. And it, interestingly, it was quite a few people, of, young people of color who had been to Vietnam. It was a number of black church women who had a sense of community and organization and some other young rebellious people, young people that wanted to stand up to the company. And we put out a leaflet calling on people to fight the speed up. And we quoted the contract saying, you only had to work at a normal pace. So when that leaflet went out, it was like a declaration of war. All of a sudden, the veteran workers that had been there for decades woke up and they taught us how to fight speed up, which was to ride the line. You would do your job with the additional three cars, no matter how long it took you. So you might end up 15 feet past your workstation, pushing everybody else out of their workstations. 
So the, the aisles were filling up with cars that were half built. The roof was filled up with cars that were half built. And the company was really, you know, in a tough position because we were disrupting production to protest the speed up. Where it came to a head was we decided, let's make up some T-shirts. And in those days, you couldn't go and just order them. We went and got a silk screen. We had a stop sign printed on it. And the T-shirts we made at my house all had a big red stop sign that said, fight speed up. We took them into the shop. We started selling them. And they went like crazy. And people wanted more. So the next day, we sold more. And the company basically lost it and went around and notified everybody in the factory, if you wear a t-shirt tomorrow, you'll be discharged. Well, I wasn't sure what to do. I mean, I had never contemplated threatening other people's jobs by an action that I was advocating. But then a steward came up to me and bought a t-shirt. A chief steward came up and bought a t-shirt and the vice president of the union. And when that word went out, everybody started wearing them and we won. They had to take the work off our jobs and they had to hire additional workers. But the word came out that the president of the union wanted to get me because I had been so disruptive in organizing this fight against speed up. And American Motors reached out to the FBI and there's a on my website, JonathanMelrod.com. There's a couple hundred pages of my FBI file and the FBI came back to American Motors and said, you got to fire the guy. He's leading. He's disrupting production. This is going on at factories all over Milwaukee. These these people who are part of the Revolutionary Union, which was an organization we belong to, are doing the same thing. And I knew they were going to be coming to get me. And sure enough, three days later, a couple of guards, three guards and a, the head of labor relations came up and physically dragged me off the line because I refused to leave with many of the workers yelling to sit down to protect my job. But they got me out of the factory. Months later, we had organized a union meeting to vote for a strike to get rehired. And we actually won that vote, but the president of the union threw the clicker, the counter on the ground, said the damn thing isn't working, called for a voice vote, ruled that we had lost. And I then went to the National Labor Relations Board, who six months later issued a ruling that American Motors was reviving the McCarthy era, the, the 1950s red baiting, and that they had fired me under false pretense that I had actually been engaged in fighting over better working conditions. The ostensible reason was that I hadn't put down that I went to school in Madison. And the judge found that to be irrelevant and ordered me rehired. Two and a half years later, finally, it went to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and they ordered them to put me back to work with my full back pay and my legal fees compensated. So you eventually came back to AMC, transferred to Kenosha. But talk about the, those that in-between in period uh, where you discovered, in essence, a whole different strata of the industrial working class. Well, that's really a good way to put it. I mean, it was a different strata. I went to work at Pfister and Vogel Tannery because I had been blacklisted and it was difficult to get a job. And there was no worse job in, in Milwaukee than the five tanneries that were lined up along the river in those days, all of which were dumping waste into the river. And it was unconscionable. Even before the environmental movement, it, it looked like there was something wrong with that, that uh, way of getting rid of the chemical waste. But in any event, I was the only white guy that was working there. It was all, all black workers from the South who came in up north and took you know whatever job was available and that was the tannery and that was a very much of a learning experience there was no union there you were on your own if they told you to work 12 hours a day you worked the 12 hours you couldn't turn it down and it it really was a good lesson in how important unionization is from there i went into a tanner i mean to a foundry where i was welding on the third shift Mack truck axles, and there the 90 days was the probationary period before you got into the union. And I walked in on my 58th day and the superintendent called me over and he said, you know, you're a good worker, 
I don't really want to do this, but there's some federal people that visited me today and they said, I got to fire you. So I got fired again. After that, I got smarter and I didn't use my phone number when I applied for work. I didn't take a direct route to job potential, to places that I could potentially get a job. And I had to watch over my shoulder to see if I was being followed by the FBI. And I was able to land a job at a steelworkers plant where we made oxygen tanks big metal tanks that we were that we were forging and then spinning so that they would close up into being tanks. And that was a very different experience because that union was what we now call a business union. It really wasn't interested in taking on the company. It was more satisfied with a cozy relationship with the company and burying disputes. Making, making it as if disputes weren't really there, although they were underlying. And if you weren't on your job, you were talking about how bad your job was. And again, I was able to build a caucus and we led a eight week strike for the first time in decades over wages and working conditions and the lousy contract that we had. And there's a good story to go with that. I don't know if we have the time, but it was a successful strike. And I learned that you could organize people wherever you were. That was out in Cudahy, I mean, out in West Dallas. And it was almost all white workers. Many of them were really racist. And we had a fight. I had to fight racism as I was organizing. And I could see people changing. And over time, they changed very much. And they went to support the meat cutters strike which was an all black workers at seven meat cutters factories in 1980, I believe it was in Milwaukee, where they busted the unions. And that was the beginning of the downfall of the union movement in Milwaukee. You know, John Milrod, we're getting toward the end of the hour. I got to take a, we got to take a little break here to encourage people to call once again, uh, before we get to the end of the hour. Uh, to show your support for this station, for this program, for everything we do here at WORT. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. Bert Zipper, you looked like you were going to say something. (laughs) I was going to say thank you. Um, You've got a lot of supporters out there, Alan, and so does WORT. Um, We've had 10 pledges this hour so far. Let's double that in the next 10 minutes. That would be fine. Scott um, has pledged from Columbus, getting uh, getting the wart bucket hat. And uh, Scott Benneke, thank you so much. That was a very generous pledge. And we have an online pledge from uh, Aaron from Canton. And he wants you to know this is in memory of Ben Stark. So very good. Thank you. 608-256-2001, extension one. Give us your support this hour. We've been touching on the uh, on the early '80s, and that, of course, John, is a period when uh, deindustrialization uh, and and factory, fl- you know, the abandonment really of that old industrial quadrant of the United States, uh, the the rust belting, uh, the moves overseas or to different regions. Uh, um, <clears throat> within the country and so on. Um, it began, in a sense, with what you were talking about with with those kind of joint ventures, tran- transnational uh, joint ventures. But talk about that, what it came to mean for the industrial heartland uh, uh, of which uh, race, um, Milwaukee and Kenosha and Racine were emblematic. In those days, Milwaukee was called the, I think it was the toolbox of America because so much was made in Milwaukee. And there was the working class in that period who were working in union factories, which most of them were in Milwaukee, made a decent living. You know, people had a house. A lot of people had a cottage up north on one of the lakes. Their kids went to college, which was a great opportunity. And there then became this movement to maximize profit by offshoring and manufacturing. And it was devastating. 
one factory after the other, Alice Chalmers, American Motors, A.O. Smith, were leaving and abandoning the city. And what had once been a very prosperous city has now become one of the poorest cities in the country with a racial divide that's just terrible. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, companies like Renault that had come in, bought into American Motors, and then eventually when it didn't suit their worldwide plan, just abandoned it. Uh, and those jobs were lost. Right now, Masterlock is probably the last gasp for industrial jobs in Milwaukee. Um, you know, I, Alan, is it all right to say that because we're running short and because we're doing this, you're doing this great fundraising, that I put the book on sale for people because of shows like yours, if they go to pmpress.org, the publisher, and put in the code FIGHTING in capital letters, they get a 40% discount. I'm, I have nothing against you plugging PM Press. After all, it was my publisher as well, uh, an important radical publishing house uh, carrying on a long, long tradition uh, of, well, these ventures that create the literature, the, the analysis, uh, the history uh, that we all thrive on or certainly need. So sure, to repeat that, John. Yes, if they go to either my website, jonathanmelrod.com, on the landing page, there'll be a link to pmpress.org. And the book has been put on sale at 40% off. Your generous people who've been contributing, the book will only be about $14 at that point. Well, you can't say and the if, amount. <laughs> and if, and if you put in the code FIGHTING, all capital letters, you'll get that you'll get that discount. But thank you for your compliments about the publisher, Alan. Sure. Uh, uh, Ramsey Kanan and the crowd out there uh, in the Bay Area, they've been great. So with, with that deindustrialization taking place, with so much going on, uh, you opt to leave uh, the factory in 85. You move to San Francisco, you enroll in law school, and eventually work as an asylum law attorney representing refugees. Uh, in the meantime, as well, uh, working in, in continuing in the movement as a movement activist doing anti-racist work. Talk about that period briefly. We're running low on time, but I think, I, I think it's important. Well, that was very important work because, you know, actually with a partner, we were able to build up the largest refugee asylum firm in San Francisco with well over a thousand clients. But we really worked hard at presenting legitimate cases of asylum and set the precedent for certain lawsuits that are now successful. We had a average of 80% or more asylum grants as opposed to the national average of 32%. And that was because I really believed in what we were doing. And if somebody came to us with a case, like a Pakistani who was a member of the Pakistan People's Party, and they had taken pictures of vote fraud and police officers stuffing the ballot and then had to flee for their lives, we put together a comprehensive case of why they needed safety to be granted asylum in the United States. So I felt like that was very important work carrying on the mission that I was devoted to which was human rights for all people. And it went on. I mean, after that, I eventually became a lawyer up in here and up in Sonoma County and started representing five people, young people who had been shot by the police representing their family in civil suits seeking justice for their, for their, for their murders. So I've continued up until this day with my activism and feel very encouraged with these young people at Starbucks and Amazon and, and REI that are now active in forming unions. I think we're headed for some real active days. Some real change is going to come about. So we just got a few minutes left. We have to leave some time for a final uh, conversation about funding the station. Uh, but how do we sum up? Um, do you have any advice uh, I do it, so you must. Uh, advice for current activists? 
Well, I do. And that's interesting because we did some research because everybody talks about the deindustrialization of America, which is true. But the United States is still one of the two ma major manufacturing countries in the world, the U.S. and China. And those jobs are now being concentrated in the southeast, where there was just one of the first breakthroughs at Bluebird bus, School Bus Company, where the steelworkers organized successfully the, the, what was considered the unorganizable South with a breakthrough union of 1,500 people. A lot of those were black workers. And after I've been on a couple shows like yours, Alan, people have emailed me or texted me, gone onto my website and say, what can I do to help organize? And I direct them toward people that are working in the Southeast, organizing now in industry. That's where, as you said, the proletariat now is concentrated and there's plenty of work to get in there and do some real industrial organizing to make some real change and bring unionization and the movement for class conscious workers movement to the South and to the country. Well, John, I can't uh, thank you enough for this. Uh, well, for the book, of course, for your lifelong struggle now uh, against all odds, you might, we might say, or I will say. And uh, so I'm going to let you go because we do have to uh, wrap here, wrap up here with a final wrap. Bert, you're shuffling paper. You're filling out cards and forms here. What, what can you tell us about this hour? Well, I want to say thank you to John who just came in. Oh, and we have a new entry in the door from, uh, from Janet Davis. Uh, a, a wonderful increase in a monthly pledge, it looks like. That's great. So you've, you've had 12 pledges this hour. Well, our goal was 10 for the hour, so I'm, I'm very glad we heard it. We're right down to the end of the hour. I want to th thank Chuck, per usual, our engineer, and I want to thank Jade, our producer. Uh, uh, John Melrod's <laughs> hanging here off mic. I want to thank him again ever ever so much and i want to thank all of you who called this hour uh with uh contribution assistance to the station because we can't do what we do without you uh wort 89.9 fm i've been your host for this hour my name is alan ruff and i'll be speaking with you next week Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none.